From Washington, this is the HPS Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. Good morning. It's Friday, November 19th. You're listening to the Macrocast. This is Tony Frado at Hamilton Place Strategies. We have um, uh, John Fagan and Brendan Walsh from Markets Policy Partners uh, with us. And we have a special guest today, um, you know, a former colleague of, colleague of both mine and and John's, uh, the great Stephanie Siegel, who is a uh, non-resident senior associate at, uh, at uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And um, I got to know Stephanie when we were working at the Treasury Department together years ago. Stephanie, you actually did a couple stints at Treasury, if I remember, right? You were you were yeah. at Treasury. Um, I think actually when I when I first met you, you were covering was it Brazil at that time? It was Brazil. Yeah, yeah. good memory. Good memory. Yeah, yeah no, it's uh, it's been quite a while. I was thinking about this twenty years, pretty yeah. much since we've known one another, which is. A terrifying fact. Um, but yeah, I was there starting in 2002 and then was back and forth between Treasury and the IMF over the next 15 years. So yeah, started on Brazil, ended on China with a um, lot of stuff in between. Co director of the East Asia uh, office um, at Treasury. Um, and then your work, and now your work at uh, at CSIS, looking um, uh, in the you know in the economics uh, program. And, and how would you describe your focus at CSIS right now? So, actually, before I do that, let me just thank you guys for the invitation and say hello to John and Brendan and you. It really is nice to to reconnect with you guys, and you do great work. So it's a pleasure to be joining you. Um, so my work at CSIS, we're in the, the global economics program. So we really have a global mandate. Um, and as we just covered, I'm actually not a China expert by training. I'm more of a Latin Americanist. So I definitely strive to cover issues of global economic import. Um, what that actually translates <laughs> into, though, and in reality, we do a lot of, of U.S.-China related work. And so I'd say the bulk of my work since I've been there over the last four years has been focused on U.S.-China economic relations, uh, a lot on U.S. economic competitiveness, but Mm. economic competitiveness vis-a-vis China. And then I think, as is true for lots of folks working on economics, have found that our um, focus is pulled a lot into technology developments. Um, So again, macroeconomists by training, but kind of the reality of what drives macroeconomic outcomes um, is, uh, you know, the overlap there with technology, innovation, productivity growth is really undeniable. So we've done a lot of work around, uh, around technology. There's, uh, well, I mean, obviously there's so much to, to, uh, to dive into. I definitely want to spend some time talking about, um, <clears throat> talking about especially China, uh, you know, I think I've said it's the, it, in my mind, it has been and will continue to be, I, I think, the most important bilateral, uh, you know, relationship in the world for the next 50 years is the U.S.-China bilateral relationship. And um, it is an especially challenging time right now on so many fronts, um, you know, economically and culturally strategically. Uh, so there's just, there's just so much uh, going on there. We also wanted, we wanted to talk about, um, we want to put you to put your, 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 uh, your macro hat on 
and talk about uh, the, the you know the topical story of the of the time right now, uh, which is inflation. I mean, I feel like you know, all things come back. I feel like it's the seventies again. I get to talk about inflation. Now it's not seventy mm. style inflation, seventies level inflation, uh, not as fast as the seventies, but we're all talking, you know, we're all talking about inflation again. Our friend Jason Furman uh, had a, um, had a terrific piece out yesterday um, uh, talking about, you know, his view on where, on where the Fed should be going um, uh, to deal with the current situation, but how are you seeing it? I mean, you know, you know the the the, the um, you know the, the debate on where inflation is and where it could go and what the Fed should do and how we should interpret it is is you know pretty complex. But it does boil down to to a basic sense also of whether we think it's you know it really really is transitory and what transitory means right now. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the transitory point, I almost think it's the point itself is kind of beside the point um, in the sense that I think of inflation and the discussion around inflation is really about expectations and credibility. And I think that kind of ties into discussions around the Federal Reserve, its role, its independence, uh, its leadership and kind of composition of the FOMC. Um, as far as where inflation will go, I mean, I, I think I agree with the analysts that say, you know, anyone that claims to know precisely the direction of inflation is, um, uh, you know, is, is maybe overconfident because there are so many variables and so many unknowns and I feel a bit like it's Groundhog's Day because we've been saying now for the past 20 months that it's really a function of the path of the virus, the um, effectiveness of technology, so treatments and the vaccines, and then kind of execution on a strategy to contain. And that is all still very true. And mm-hmm. the virus itself is still kind of morphing. So, you know, the, the health outcomes still um, drive economic outcomes. And so that's kind of the first big variable that complicates, um, you know, the job of forecasters. The, the second thing I would say is the, the role of kind of government policy, both fiscal and monetary. Um, you know, we, we think there are kind of the, the two levers there that government authorities actually have control over. Um, And so kind of what is the stance of that policy? Um, We know kind of on the fiscal side, the magnitude of support that's been provided. And now we've had another big fiscal package passed and another one in the pipeline. So I, I think it makes a lot of sense for folks to be taking into account the impact on demand and the pass through to prices from that fiscal support. And then there's kind of a separate debate about the the structural need for that support, you know, certainly on infrastructure. I don't even think, uh, I I don't think there are many skeptics there, right? Um, um, And now we've got the the Build Back Better package that's pending and kind of the debates about, you know, what the ultimate impact that could be on inflation. That's actually a topic worth debating, but again, another kind of unknown (laughs) Yeah, just then, lots of unknowns, right? I mean, I could yeah. be, even if you just look at Build Back Better, right? What does uh, what do the uh, support for 
um, you know, family medical leave and, and child tax credit. And, you know, so the sort of family support things do for uh, labor force participation yeah. rates, right? Like how, how do you project that? How do you model yeah. that? It's really challenging. Yeah. And I mean, and right, it's challenging and therefore it's worthy of debate. And so for, for anyone that kind of claims, you know, blanket statement that this is, you know, automatically inflationary, um, or not, for that matter. I, I think it is absolutely worthy of debate. So on the fiscal side, I think it's it's a little bit more difficult to assess. I'd say on the kind of the um, monetary policy side, and I'm really curious to hear what the three of you have to say about mm. that. I mean, I think kind of lost in the discussion um, is the fact that monetary policy continues to be incredibly supportive. Um, and we're not just talking interest rates, but we're talking kind of asset purchases. And so fine, we're now talking taper, but taper means reducing the size of central bank purchases. That's still very supportive policy. Um, and so I, you know, lots of of folks smarter than I am have been making kind of the um, the suggestion that the pace of the taper, you know, that's something that the Fed could tweak, in particular if inflation pressures kind of remain where they are. And, and we'll see, you know, with the data that we get next month, but all signs are that the economy remains very strong. Um, I don't suspect that we're going to see any abatement of that inflationary pressure anytime soon. So, you know, should the Fed be looking at tweaking policy mm-hmm. and tweaking policy to go back to where I started, um, because it's it's Fed credibility that's on the line and the Fed needs to be anticipating the risk, not responding to that risk actually materializing. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of on the side of maybe tweaking that that taper policy and giving the Fed a bit more um, demonstration that it is responding to the price pressures it sees. When we talk about price pressures, obviously the expectations component is a really key and it's also very slippery. There are all these different measurements of expectations. There are the ones in the University of Michigan uh, consumer survey. There, the New York Fed has uh, their own their own gauge of, of inflation expectations. And, uh, and certainly the market, you can see baked in expectations in the tips break even rate, the most, you know, most cited market-based gauge of inflation expectations. And, uh, and so all of them, all of them look pretty elevated. I think the interesting thought experiment is the, uh, is thinking about, you know, Fed credibility from the perspective of financial markets and the idea that if the, if the Fed were to rhetorically pivot Toward a uh, toward a increasingly inflation fighting stance, you know what would that mean? We've seen some really marginal moves in the in the center of the committee. Fed Chair Powell has been very very measured, but even the doves, as we saw New York Fed President Williams yesterday, citing at least a rhetorically tougher line on inflation. Yeah. And what's happened over this period of time? The dollar has rallied to you know its strongest level since September. Uh, yeah. We've gotten some, you know, a real response in the front end of the yield curve. The yield curve has, you know, yields have, yields have gone up. We've gotten a flattening in the yield curve. We've gotten a, you know, there's a, there's a sense that if the Fed were to, were to do a, a, a lot more work on the, on the inflation rhetorically, on, on inflation fighting rhetorically, at least, 
the markets certainly are ready to respond. I don't know if that feeds into consumer expectations, but it's easy to see under the current circumstances, the, the, I think that uh, these, these sort of equilibriums in, uh, in market concern, we're in this sort of unsteady equilibrium phase of inflation concerns. And it's easy to see how that can shift so quickly into growth concerns. <laughs> we've, we've been toggling between these two uh, for, for a long period of time. Well, and it's it's kind of so market expectations, but then there's also the expectations kind of more at the the micro level, right? And this is where we, yep. you know, we we move the inflation debate from you know economists and um, and market participants to um, the political realm and the fact that you know folks going to the grocery store are actually seeing these price increases and they're actually experiencing hopefully, an ability um, to have more uh, power when it comes to negotiating wages. So they know that they have some ability there to, um, to, uh, to, to increase their wages, but that in turn can be inflationary. So it's the signaling that you're talking about, John, um, but it also is kind of the reality of what folks are experiencing on the ground. And certainly those two things end up being connected um, eventually. But I, I think, you know, there's a political argument to be made for being kind of responsive to those price pressures as well. You bring up the micro case, and I wanted to uh, talk about one particular element of the micro case, which is oil, gasoline prices. And we saw earlier this week, the summit between Presidents Biden and Xi. And one of the outcomes was not a really loosely coordinated agreement between the two major powers to potentially tap strategic reserves of oil to push back. Is this, so I, I want to ask a couple of different questions. One is, you know, the sense of oil and gasoline prices as the most sort of visible, salient, you know, hit you right in the pocketbook kind of manifestation. And, uh, and, and that's, and, and how the Biden administration has addressed that and your thoughts on that, but also looking at this in the context of the U.S.-China summit, is this potentially energy prices an area where we can find a little common ground? Is this uh, maybe the beginning of something here uh, from well, your perspective after this call last Monday? On Monday? Yeah, I mean, how ironic though, right? Because uh, for the longest time, the the issue that was seen as kind of the the global public good that could actually unify US and China was climate <laughs> and climate in the direction of you know less uh, carbon intensive uh, energy sources and and you know here we are the reality and kind of where we are in the energy transformation is one that would have the US and China kind of loosely coordinating on you know, putting pressure on OPEC, basically. So um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot in your question that's worthy of, of discussion, but I, I think one, it does point to the fact, you know, looking at the US-China relationship, there are issues where US and Chinese interests are aligned. And let's just say it's kind of energy and climate is one of those issues. Um, and then kind of your, your second point, I think, is, you know, the, how the Biden administration, I think you were asking, are they, are they responding to that inflationary pressure and really focusing on the energy piece? Because that's the one that is most immediate and probably most visible 
Um, I, I think absolutely. It's, it's hard to kind of interpret it otherwise, in particular because climate has been such a big focus, and yet we kind of face the reality of where we are right now. And, and there are political calculations needed to respond to the moment in order to achieve some of those longer term goals on climate. Was there, uh, was there anything else that came out of the, um, uh, the summit that, that you, you know, that you, uh, uh, that you thought was important uh, right now, Stephanie? I mean, how, how did you read this? this the, I mean, I, I, I hesitate to even call it a summit because it was, it seemed like a, almost a, 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 a re- uh, getting to know each other, uh, yeah. uh, right? I mean, I, I mean yeah. summit seems too grand a word for what yeah. that was. Yeah. Um, it was like, let's talk about topics right now. Yeah. I mean, in a way too grand and it was over Zoom, right? It was, yeah. <laughs> it was exactly. doing what we're doing here today. Yeah. Um, and, and yet it's, I actually think it was quite a big deal Important. for a, a couple, yeah, for a couple of mm-hmm. reasons. One, you look at the backdrop of how each of the two leaders kind of came into that meeting. So that that meeting took place a few hours after uh, President Biden signed the infrastructure bill. And I think lost in the many trillions of dollars of support that we talk about over the last uh, 20 months. I mean, this was a huge accomplishment, right? And I, I think you guys have talked about this before, but you know, this was, uh, you know, an excess of a trillion dollar spending package on infrastructure that has been the goal of, you know, past administrations that haven't been able to get it off the ground. So it's a a really big deal. It was bipartisan, and it gets um, support to some of these areas that that folks have been saying are really critical to our economic future. And so, you know, Biden's whole argument about, you know, the the necessity, essential nature of showing that democracies are actually capable of delivering for its people, you know, within a year of of, uh, becoming president, he delivered on that. So he went into this summit, (laughs) virtual summit, from a position of strength and having actually accomplished something huge with something else huge still in the pipeline mm-hmm. um, in the Build Back Better legislation. So President Xi, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> President Xi came into this summit having uh, been incorporated into Chinese Communist Party history as one of, you know, kind of three great leaders with this resolution coming out of um, the CCP, you know, recognizing his his role in their history. And so, you know, in terms of accomplishments and coming in from a position of strength, he also came in kind of from a position of really being unrivaled and, you know, an in- president, president for life, right? Yeah, I mean, basically, that, basically. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so the fact that they were having this summit, having each accomplished things that kind of really established their bona fides, I think, shouldn't be, um, uh, should be appreciated, I guess. The, the second reason why I think it's, it's extremely important, notwithstanding the fact that there weren't a lot in the way of deliverables, is the U.S. and China have not been 
engaging for years now and tensions have been escalating and first kind of among them is around Taiwan and kind of the the risks around that. So just the fact that the leaders met, met over the course of three plus hours. And then I think that meeting was essential in order to start the, the more technical meetings that have to take place in order to manage the competition between US and China in a way that keeps us out of kind of a hot conflict. I, I think that is critical and you know critical, not just for folks like us watching US-China developments day to day, but you know critical for security reasons and to avoid what could be a really uh, big mistake. Um, so I, I think the summit itself is, is a pretty big deal. And then as you pointed out, you know, what specifically came out of it. You know, I think some folks were hoping that, you know, tariff reductions might be discussed. If they were, we didn't get any details on that. Um, you know, I think there was some news about uh, about opening up um, for journalists uh, on both sides. So you kind of can get some of those um, human connections reestablished. Um, so I think, you know, we can expect to see some incremental progress on specific issues post-summit, but we would never even be able to get to that point unless they'd met in the first place. Yeah, I think that's right. Look, I, I am always, uh, you know, pro-talking, right? I mean, actually, I'd actually like to see them commit to some kind of regular um, dialogue, uh, recommit to uh, some regular dialogue to get back to get back to that. At the same time, you know, like the horizon ahead, it look, just looks fraught, right? With, um, you know, you mentioned Taiwan. We still have the, you know, the trade uh, uh, issues out there. You have issues that, uh, you know, get, uh, the, you know, spikes in the relationship that are um, troubling, you know, like we saw with the NBA a few years ago. Today it's Peng Shui. You know, tomorrow it's going to be the Olympics. And, um, you know, so like th there are these regular just, you know, uh, uh, obstacles on the horizon in the relationship. And like, I agree, like I'd rather they be talking and try to find a way out of it. But um, uh, it's hard to see how we can have a big impact on some, you know, some of those things. The Olympics is going to be big. Taiwan is like in a different, its own, it's in its own yeah. special yes. giant a dangerous category. Yeah. Yeah. Taiwan is its own thing. And I'm always careful to say I'm not an expert in that space. So I can kind yeah. of observe what I see, but um, yeah, there, Taiwan is its own thing, but I, you know, I, I saw the news kind of on uh, the Olympics and, you know, maybe a potential partial boycott. I, I think when it comes to how the U S engages with China and any kind of specific actions we might take. We just published a report about a month ago um, that looks, it establishes a framework for actually evaluating specific activities and whether or not the US and China should engage. And in the event that there is a, a material risk to engagement, we should be 
seeing if disengagement actually helps advance U.S. objectives. And that's kind of my, my biggest takeaway as I look down the list of kind of possible actions the U.S. should take. Those actions should always be honed in on what are we trying to achieve and what's the likelihood that taking an action increases uh, our, the chances of our desired outcome. So we, we shouldn't be, just to, to take an example, we shouldn't be um, boycotting something for the sake of you know, making a, a political statement if it doesn't actually help advance our objectives. Um, and sometimes I think that gets lost, um, that it feels good to, uh, to bash an adversary. <laughs> Um, but there are sometimes downsides to taking actions if you don't really know where that's going to lead. And so I, I do worry sometimes that, um, that uh, we're not thinking kind of three steps ahead as to what's the likelihood of effect- effectiveness, what's the, the ultimate outcome of that action. And that's really where we need to be to make good policy. So I, I, hope, <laughs> I hope that's where we end up. While the while the engagement with China is maybe uh, is is maybe getting to a you know to a better phase after this, well, obviously time time will tell. But in the meantime, the U.S. is working on the Biden administration is focused on policies, and it's something you mentioned before: policies to address U.S. competitiveness and you know keeping our own house in order as we uh, as we look uh, as we look into the future. Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill are certainly part of that. But there was the Senate, the bipartisan bill that the Senate passed earlier this year on competitiveness uh, and uh, U.S. and essentially looked like uh, U.S. industrial policy. I would love to get your take on this bill and uh, and the you know how it was organized, what you what's your take on its effectiveness and the and the thesis behind it, and and really whether it's going to see the light of day through the House. Uh, it's it's a very interesting piece of legislation from from what we've seen. Yeah, this is the USICA, ugly acronym for it, but you, the USICA bill. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, so it so industrial policy, as you guys know, is kind of having a, a rebirth, and not just here. You know, I think kind of uh, in Europe and Japan. And kind of characterized as in response to what China already does, um, but I, you know, I I see it as a recognition of the need to invest in ourselves. And going back to kind of where we started about the amount of time that we spend on technology issues as economists, I think there's a recognition that there are certain foundational technologies and innovations that are going to be the basis for future economic growth. And what you, how you see that manifest in, in legislation is in USICA, and, uh, and there the priority is on semiconductors and uh, providing financial support for, uh, for domestic manufacturers of, of semiconductors. There, so the fact that um, the fact that there is kind of that recognition that there is an identification of sectors that are critical, um, I I think that that's all well and good. Um, but <laughs> I put a big asterisk next to it. 
um, the, the public sector should not be financing activities that the private sector will already finance. And so how those um, resources are channeled um, and, you know, you can apply this to any number of industries that are deemed to be strategic, right? Um, The public sector shouldn't be crowding out private sector resources. And we certainly, (laughs) in trying to compete with China, we shouldn't basically adopt Chinese policies, right? So we, I'm, I'm of the view that we benefit from um, a, a market-driven economy and from the fact that, you know, we don't have blanket guarantees on certain sectors, and that actually allows for less competitive actors to fail and the more competitive actors to succeed. Um, and that is to our advantage, Um, I was talking with a colleague of mine about the fact that you just look at kind of vaccines and the innovation that took place, you know, building on years worth of work. But um, U.S. and European developed vaccines are superior. And (laughs) that is a reflection of how we we innovate. And so we shouldn't lose sight of that. Um, And so while I'm kind of supportive of identifying strategic sectors providing support where needed, that support where, where needed should be where there are market failures and yeah. not, you know, here's a blank check um, and, and uh, not letting market forces work. Yeah, I think that's actually, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's, I always wondered, you know, when I would hear people talk to me about, you know, the things that China is doing and we need to, and we need to do those things. And I would say like, you, we need to, misallocate capital is that what you're mm-hmm. that what you're saying like we need to push capital into its into lower productive uh, you know less productive uh, uses for what reason exactly yeah. you know just understand what they are actually doing you know um, yeah. yeah and we it's interesting because you hear you know you hear and again not a technologist but having talked to experts in technology you do hear claims that you know these technologies ai biotech, like there's a difference here in that having the ability to centrally plan advantages the development of those technologies. That's an, that's an argument. On the other side of that is no, actually smaller actors being more nimble. um, That's what actually advantages in particular innovation. And just from kind of personal experience, we've done work looking at at foreign research collaboration and heard from US entities that are partnered with with Chinese counterparts um, here kind of in the academic sphere, their Mm. preference to work with those researchers that are not directly affiliated with the government because that central involvement actually slows down the pace of innovation. So you have anecdotes that I think support kind of the latter version, which is being more nimble and less centrally directed is actually better for, for competition. But it is, this is another topic that's worthy of debate because I don't think anyone really knows the answer yet. No, yeah, I don't think it's a slam dunk that way because I mean, look, at the end of the day, you do need, you know, you, you do need a sort of institutional size, like you're to end up with institutional sized customers, right? So mm-hmm. like uh, winners end up being picked, yeah. And they end up being picked by like really big institutional buyers 
um, at the end of the day. And that's not always like the very, you know, what some people would consider the very best technology, right? It's like the adaptation becomes, and it becomes the standard, right? So the things become standard um, that you can then, you know, grow on and develop all kinds of other things on. The sort of standardization of whatever the technology is ends up being the thing, yeah. Right. Because uh, you cannot, because you can't, you know, you can innovate forever, but you need sort of, you know, a market available product, whatever that market is at some point. Yeah. You're actually reminding me, Tony, of something else that I wanted to, to point I wanted to make when we talk about US China and kind of what should be the goal of US policy, given how complicated and critical the relationship is. Um, you'll probably remember from, our time at Treasury, where we didn't really worry so much what, uh, what China did necessarily. Um, we had kind of our own policy. I'm thinking here specifically of kind of open investment environments, where yeah. we maintain open investment because that is to our advantage. We're not going to worry so much if that's not China's policy or anyone else's policy. Mm -hmm. I That, I think has changed and it's a good thing that that has changed in the sense that China is you know no longer a significantly smaller emerging market economy it is you know by whatever measure you look at the second largest or the largest economy in the world yep. and so to have asymmetries you know where our system is open and theirs is closed that is one distortionary to the global economy, but two, I think does disadvantage the United States. So we should be looking for symmetry in our policies, whether it's you know FX policy, it doesn't yep. work if one system is floating and the other one is fixed. Um, and similarly on investment and access policy, it doesn't work for the US, but I would say for the global economy to have an open economy and the other largest economy closed. So yeah. I, I would, yeah. I agree. I, and, and, I, when, and I think of um, sort of, you know, sort of efforts to get China to see that and understand it as well. Also that that, that is where the future is going to be it's needed to be a collaborative effort from like-minded economies, right? With, um, you know, United States and Europe working together, United States and non-China East Asia, or Asia working, Pacific Rim working together, which was, you know, TPP and, and our efforts in Europe. And, did, you know, is, uh, is, that, is that possible? Because we can't force China to do it alone. Not at all. We can't force China to do Anything. anything, just like China can't really force us to do anything. I think, you know, we, we act and they act in self-interest as mm -hmm. do the Europeans, as I mean, it is, yeah. you know, nation states doing their nation, thing. Exactly. Yeah. Which is all well and good. But I think where you were going is, is the U S working with Europe, with Australia, with Japan, with allies and partners actually makes a much more convincing case that it would be in China's self-interest to actually adhere to certain global standards. And that applies, you know, whether we're talking about policies around subsidies. And I would say, given our discussion on industrial policy, it's, it's transparency around those policies that's really essential. Um, or if we're talking about, you know, climate's another one where... <laughs> There really needs to be a high price 
put on those that are not kind of getting behind, uh, you know, the, the transformation that has to take place. So the only way to get there, I'm just in agreement with you, is to be working with other countries to apply that pressure um, and to stay, you know, on the same page. And that is no small task. Um, but I think, you know, clearly the intention is there and there have been steps in that direction. You know, there's this EU-US Trade and Tech Council that, you know, plants the seeds for that sort of, of coordination and cooperation. So we just need to see where it goes from here. Are you optimistic on that front? Um, I am clear-eyed, <laughs> but optimistic. <laughs> I, I think it's going to be really hard um, I think the administration's appeal to values is um, is important. I think you know folks are sometimes dismissive of you know values as an organizing principle, but I think reminding our allies and partners and ourselves that there are certain things that actually do unify us democracy being kind of first and foremost among them, that that is a good organizing principle. And reminding us of that actually maybe helps us compromise where we need to, because I think both sides are going to have to, to compromise. I agree. Stephanie, it's been such a great joy to have you on. Like it was like the fastest 45 minutes I think we've <laughs> ever had on this show. Well, like could I you, said, it's... You, can we have you back one of these days? Oh, it's a pleasure. It's great. Yeah. It's great really to see all of you guys. Um, and like I said, I've, I've listened to your podcast. You always have, um, you know, insightful and clear discussions, which I really appreciate. Um, and I think is, is much needed. So happy to come back whenever you invite me. <laughs> we'll, we will, I promise you, we will take you up on that because we, we, we'd, we'd absolutely love to have you back. And there's so many things to talk about. We probably could have done another, we could have done a full like two hours on these things, but thanks so much for joining us today. I know on behalf of you know, John and Brendan and, um, and the podcast team here. Thanks so much. And we'll definitely have you back and, um, and guys have a great, uh, have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to the HPS Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share.